Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of change makers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Louis Rosenberg. Louis is a true pioneer of virtual and augmented reality. He got his PhD at Stanford University. He worked for NASA, and in 1992, he developed the first mixed reality system at the Air Force Research Lab, the Virtual Fixtures Platform. Then in 1993, he founded the early VR company, Immersion Corporation, and took it public in 1999. He is currently the CEO of the artificial intelligence company, Unanimous AI, and the chief scientist of the Responsible Metaverse Alliance. I really enjoyed Lewis's insights on the metaverse, AR, VR, the role they will play in our future, as well as the fast pace of change in artificial intelligence, including talking about the swarm technology that Unanimous AI is known for. I'm sure you will enjoy the conversation and learn a lot from Lewis as well. I also love hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahan at mahantavikoli.com. There is also a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. Really enjoy getting those voice messages. Don't forget to follow the podcast. And when you get a chance, leave a rating and review on your favorite platform that will help more people find and benefit from these conversations. Now, here is my conversation with Louis Rosenberg. Louis Rosenberg, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Thanks for having me. You are a pioneer in virtual and augmented reality, have started up so many businesses, so you know both about the technology part of it and also the business part of it. And right now, leading Unanimous AI, you're doing fascinating things there that can be applicable to a lot of organizational decision-making. But before we get to any of that, would love to know, Louis, whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted the kind of person you've become. So I grew up in New York on Long Island. I grew up in a suburb of Manhattan. It wasn't a very technology-focused place at all, especially back then in the 1970s and 80s. Technology. In fact, I don't think I ever even met an engineer my entire upbringing, wow. but I was dyslexic uh, and actually had a really big impact on me. So I was dyslexic. I would re- reverse things, reverse words, reverse numbers. And just by chance in school, I got introduced to very first personal computers that barely coming out in the early 80s. And because I was dyslexic, it was actually really interesting to me because if you typed in, if I was learning to program a little bit and you typed in something wrong, like you made a syntax error, it would just tell you. If you wrote something backwards, it would just immediately tell you. And I'd be like, oh, like I get instant feedback and I can fix it. And so actually, because I was dyslexic, I became very interested in computer programming very early when I was 12 years old, which is not that strange now, but 40 years ago it was. By the time I was 15, 16, I was working part-time as a programmer. So it really moved my interests into technology, even though I didn't grow up in that atmosphere at all. 
And it also helped me learn better. I went from struggling as a student to doing really well by the time I was in high school. So I ended up coming out to California to go to Stanford. And Stanford is where I got first exposed to the fact that, hey, there's this place called Silicon Valley and entrepreneurship and things. So that pushed me in this other direction. I ended up really interested in technology and entrepreneurship. I founded a number of companies, but all of the companies and all the work that I did really focused very much on the boundaries between technology and human perception, which again, I think goes back to you know, being dyslexic, because when you're dyslexic, you're always dealing with these perception issues. And what I found over the years is that I meet people who end up interested in virtual reality, augmented reality, who are dyslexic, maybe for similar reasons. I meet people who are interested in filmmaking and other forms of media, or maybe also because they're dyslexic. And so it's definitely had, to my mind, very positive impact on the direction of my life, although people struggle with all kinds of different learning disabilities and issues. But I think if they learn to adapt and cope, it ends up being a strength for them. What a beautiful example of anti-fragility, Lewis. I love Nassim Taleb's writing, and he talks about how sometimes breakage or setbacks, some systems bounce back to the way they were before. Some become even better. Dyslexia, you, because of that, were able to find a passion and a love. And I find in a lot of your work, you're also able to connect with the humanity as well as the technology, in part maybe because of that experience. My interest has really been on this boundary between people and technology, really from the start, and it's guided everything that I've done. I did my undergraduate at Stanford, and then I stayed there and did a PhD at Stanford, really focusing in human-computer interaction and how to enhance human performance using technology. And then I founded a number of companies, and it's always on this boundary between people and technology. And Personally, I think it's one of the most interesting topics because you can go talk about a variety of things, virtual reality to artificial intelligence, but you can always go too far on one side. There's dangers of virtual reality, the metaverse. It's going to dehumanize people. And I worry about that a lot. I also think it's a very humanizing technology. On the artificial intelligence side, same thing. Artificial intelligence, it's inspired by understanding how humans work, where really it's about trying to replace or understand how humans think and humans make decisions and then allow computers to do it. And yet there's also this danger of replacing humans. That's something that I worry a lot about. I actually feel like the biggest flaw in the world of AI is that most people don't appreciate how smart humans are. Right? Like We have far greater skills than we give ourselves credit for. And my work in artificial intelligence in a lot of ways, always keeps coming back and telling me, wow, people are pretty amazing. Look, we're getting closer and getting better with AI, but it still should be showing us how powerful the human brain is, how much knowledge and information is in the human brain. And I think we just take it for granted. I love the fact that you see it as an augmentation of human intelligence rather than a replacement of human intelligence. So it becomes a tool. Now, you also worked on the very first and developed the first augmented reality system for the U.S. Air Force. How did that come about? And what was that like back then? I got involved in this field of immersive technologies, virtual reality, back in 1991 when I was a grad student at Stanford working on my PhD. 
And while I was doing that, I was lucky enough to also get a part-time opportunity working at NASA in their virtual reality lab. And this is the early days of virtual reality. I was working on virtual reality vision systems, the big, really clunky system you may see in the old pictures. And I was working on how to work in software and model the distance between your eyes to optimize depth perception. Those are the types of issues, really basic issues that were being worked on back. This is over 30 years ago. And I was immediately captivated and amazed by the power of virtual reality, the ability to put people into this immersive world that feels real and looks real. And while I was doing this research at Stanford and NASA, I also felt really uncomfortable using virtual reality because it cuts you off from your surroundings. I wanted all the power of these virtual worlds, but not feel isolated from just my direct surroundings, feel isolated from my workplace. I felt like what I really wished that I could do is take these amazing virtual things and just splash them all around the real world. And so I pitched that to the U.S. Air Force, and I was fortunate enough to get a fellowship and go out to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and build a system that was called the Virtual Fixtures Platform. And it was called Virtual Fixtures because the goal was to say, hey, could I show that People could perform tasks, manual tasks in the real world with these virtual fixtures, virtual things around them that would guide what they see and what they hear and what they feel to enhance their performance with the idea that we could basically bring virtual tool into your real workspace and allow you to perform better. And so I spent a number of years working on this system called the Virtual Fixtures Platform and ran experiments and tests and showed that, yeah, you could actually combine the real world and the virtual world into a single perceptual reality that was so convincing that people really couldn't, they really didn't think about what was real, what was virtual. They were just thinking about performing a task. And the task that I worked on, again, it was just to prove that this was possible, was people grabbing a metal peg and moving it from one hole to another hole and showing that I could bring in these virtual fixtures and allow them to perform faster. And it worked. And it was the first time that, that anyone had created this mixed reality where people could see and hear and feel and perform better. And the most impactful thing for me about it was that I had to do a lot of testing with humans. I would bring in human subjects. It was a crazy system. They'd climb into this exoskeleton and perform the tests. And every single one of them would do the tests. And, and they'd never heard about virtual reality. They certainly didn't even hear about augmented reality because that word didn't even exist yet. But they climb out and they would say, one day, this is how we're going to interact with computing. It's going to be just around us. It's not going to be on a flat screen. And they were so excited about it. And I believed them. <laughs> so one of the things that I learned is that when you test things with people and they tell you something, you believe them. And right after my work was done at the Air Force, I founded an early virtual reality company, a company called Immersion Corporation in Palo Alto in 1993, because I was convinced that this technology was going to be everywhere within 10 years. And it's taken more than 10 years. It's now over 30 years, but we're now actually, I feel pretty close to virtual reality and augmented reality really impacting the lives of almost everybody in industrialized nations. I feel like we're within five to 10 years of really being significant transformation. Three times longer than I thought it would take, but I do think that it's real this time. It's going to impact everybody's lives. So I think there's great things about it, and I also think that there's dangerous things about it, and I work on both. <laughs> Lewis, I love a quote from Ernest Hemingway, the 
character is asked about how he went bankrupt. He says, gradually, then suddenly. I think with a lot of these things, including technologies, it's gradually, then suddenly. And this seems to be the point that suddenly is starting to happen for all of us all around us. Now, you mentioned augmented reality, virtual reality, and then there's the term thrown around metaverse that a lot of people talk about, most especially since Facebook changed its name to meta and is betting all on meta. What is the difference and what do you see will be more likely scenario that we will face over the coming years and the potential opportunities for organizations? A lot of words that get confusing and they get used sometimes used wrong. It's a confusing space. This space started out with a single word, virtual reality. (laughs) And virtual reality really means an immersive simulation that you experience in the first person. Generally, you put on a headset to block out your view of the world. You'll have maybe 3D audio. You could have feedback, haptic feedback. But the idea of a virtual reality is to replace the input to all your senses and allow you to experience a fully simulated world in the first person really powerful and it's really compelling. And there's amazing things you could do with virtual reality from simulation and training to education to entertainment. When we use the word metaverse, we really are talking about virtual worlds and augmented worlds, which I'll come back to in a second. We're adding one other piece, which is that it is a shared environment with other people. And generally, when you think of a metaverse, you're thinking that there's going to be large groups of people in this immersive world, and they're going to interact for all kinds of interesting things from collaboration, classrooms, shopping, commerce, and really that simple of what the metaverse is. Now, augmented reality is if you think of virtual reality as a world that's completely simulated, augmented reality is saying, hey, let's not replace the real world. Let's augment the real world. Let's bring realistic, immersive 3D elements into your real world. Sometimes this is also called mixed reality. The difference between the words augmented reality and mixed reality are blurred. But generally, as people have realized that you can really have very realistic virtual experiences in the real world, people started talking about it more as mixed reality. It's more of a marketing term. It was really pushed first by Microsoft. They had really the first commercial product that did this called the HoloLens. Now there's many other devices that are enabling these mixed reality experiences from Meta and from HTC and actually very soon from Apple. Apple has made it pretty clear that in June they will be unveiling a mixed reality headset that probably will start shipping the end of this year. It's my personal view that the real metaverse, meaning the metaverse that could really transform our lives, will be an augmented reality, mixed reality experience, and not strictly just fully simulated worlds. And I say that because if you enter a fully simulated world, it's great for entertainment, for education. But after an hour, maybe two hours, you really feel uncomfortable being cut off from your surrounding. And so I don't see people spending their whole day in these virtual worlds, like this dystopian vision that you put on this headset and you don't see the real world for the rest of your life. I really don't think that will happen because people don't feel comfortable that way. It's like when you watch a movie, you're comfortable watching a movie for 90 minutes, an hour. People used to watch movies for three hours and they don't anymore because we don't like to be cut off from our world's too busy, right? And so I really think that these purely virtual worlds will be very much like how we deal with video games and movies and TV today. 
short duration activities that people use to escape the real world. But the metaverse that we interact with from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, I do think will be augmented reality. I say that because what augmented reality really is going to be is the evolution of the mobile phone. Like right now, the mobile phone is the primary way we interact with the digital world. It's the thing we keep with us from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. It's the thing that when we're walking down the street, we look at to get information about our world. Augmented reality is basically going to take those power and capability that we get from the mobile phones, our digital lives, and put them into lightweight glasses so that when you're walking down the street, content is not on a flat screen. It's just all around us. The information is spatially registered to the real world it's placed in the location where it's most useful. Is there anything for sale in the store that you're walking past as you walk by? It'll just pop out of the store as you walk by. My view is that 10 years from now, in the 2030s, augmented reality glasses will start to become commonplace and will start to really rival and replace mobile phones to the point where during the 2030s, we will eventually have a complete transition where you will wear eyewear, access your digital content, and we, as a society, will look back at old movies from the 2020s, where you see people walking down the street, staring at a phone, bumping into telephone <laughs> poles and stuff. We'll look at that as ridiculous. We'll say, they used to look at these little screens to get information. Information should just be around you. It should just be near space. And so I really do believe that. There's a lot of people who ask, what's the killer app? What's the reason for that? And my answer is actually much simpler. I think there's a lot of killer apps, but my answer is that Augmented reality, mixed reality, this idea of putting content into our space, it's in our DNA. And I say that because the reason it will happen is that the human perceptual system was evolved to perceive our world spatially. It evolved to understand and experience and interact. We get empathy when interacting with other people from having face-to-face -face 3D interactions. We remember things spatially. The people who have the greatest memories in the world, they do something called a memory palace, where they think of things. Our memories are spatial. Our understanding is spatial. We think spatial. And yet, since the dawn of computing, digital content has been flat. It's been flat when you look through a window at digital content. It works. It's great. It's powerful. But it's not what our brain wants. Our brain wants spatial content. And because of that, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that this metaverse happens and I personally think it's inevitable that it's a mixed reality because we also don't like to be cut off from our surroundings. There's this phrase called situational awareness. Our brain always has a full sense of what's all around us. When you're in a virtual world, you feel uncomfortable, fully virtual, because your brain still knows you're sitting in a room, but you've lost your situational awareness. When you have mixed reality, you maintain your situational awareness, but you can still have these amazing virtual experiences all around you. I do think it's coming. I do think it's real this time. And I do think that over the next five to 10 years, it's going to really accelerate and happen in a big way. And it's no longer even a question that it's going to happen. It's just it's going to happen more on the five-year side or longer on the 10-year side. I can definitely see and understand that, Louis. Even looking at my girls, I have a 13 and 16-year-old. They enjoy playing Roblox for half an hour, 45 minutes, going into the nightclub, dancing as their avatars. But that is, as you said, a very different experience than the interaction now they have with their phones and the ability to interact tactically, physically with their friends and everyone else around them while they are still holding their phones. 
So that lends itself to that augmented reality that you're talking about. So from a world of work and how businesses will be transformed, where do you think this has the greatest potential, this augmented reality, in addition to the fact that we as individuals will have more easy access to content and information based on our glasses. How will the world of work change in your view? I think it's going to impact almost every profession. And you can think about professions. So you can think in terms of vertical markets, like different vertical professions. And you can also think about just how it's going to impact mainstream consumers in daily consumer lives. One vertical that always is a little bit ahead of the others is the medical space. Only because the medical space usually afford slightly more expensive hardware than some other markets. And so think about how mixed reality, augmented reality will affect the medical space. I've spent a long time working in medical virtual reality and medical augmented reality. And so I stay on top of it and had an opportunity to really review all the latest things happening late last year. And there's now technologies out there where a patient takes a CT scan or an MRI. It's a 3D scan. And right now, what that means is that a doctor, whether it's a radiologist or another doctor that needs to look at the information, is going to look at a flat screen and then look at their patient and look at the flat screen and look at their patient and try to imagine how whatever they're looking at, whether it's a lesion or a tumor, how that fits inside that person's body. What will be commonplace five to 10 years from now is that instead, the doctor will just be wearing a mixed reality headset and they will have x-ray vision, basically, meaning They'll look at the patient and that MRI is going to be correlated with their body. And they'll be able to just look and see in the exact location of that patient where that lesion is, where that tumor is. And it saves time. It saves effort. We don't really think about it. But when doctors have to look back and forth from a flat image to a patient, they're doing these mental gymnastics and they're very good at it, but they're not perfect. With augmented reality headset, they'll be perfect. They'll be able to see exactly where it is in that patient. So that's already happening today. It's already being tested in different labs around the world. Like that will become commonplace in medicine. Now, I think of the same exact thing, same exact technology for different vertical construction. In construction, if it's something similar, you're building a building, you're trying to look at a set of flat drawings, you're trying to see where is the cables going to be routed, where is the ducting going to be routed. People on site in construction is going to put on a mixed reality headset and they're just going to see the 3D model of their building right there mixed with the building while it's being built. And so they can just see, okay, this is exactly where you can see precisely where this duct is going to go in this half building that you just built. The same thing's going to be for if you're a plumber or an electrician and you're going to just go into somebody's house to repair a pipe. That's how inexpensive these tools will be. Yeah, like you can go and have a stud finder and try to hope that behind this wall, there's a pipe where you think it is. Augmented reality glasses will give them x-ray vision and they'll just be able to essentially look through the wall at the drawings, at the schematics. And so that's really just one example of a capability, x-ray vision. It, it will impact everything from medicine to construction to plumbing. But the same types of verticals will impact almost every profession. You can think about just training. If I'm going to train somebody to repair an aircraft engine, you know, what, how are they training to? They're probably looking at a manual, looking at the engine, looking at the manual, looking at the... And again, augmented reality will just put the content right there around the real engine. And that will be a capability for professionals. 
but it will also be a capability for consumers. Consumers will be walking down the street and they'll see a tree and they'll wonder, what kind of tree is that? And it'll just pop up, annotated. Oh, that's a California oak. And so it allows us to bring the power of computing into our real world. And so the possibilities are essentially endless. And the biggest companies in the world are working hard to roll out technologies to make this possible. Meta has gotten the most hype around it because they came out first and changed their name. But Apple, Google, Microsoft, and just about every major technology company sees mixed reality as a central part of the future. I think about all the opportunities, including with education, Lewis, where kids can act with the models as they are learning. There's the opportunity to have access to that information, both in education, which will require a transformation of how we educate our kids, and in the workforce. One of the concerns around that, and maybe it would have been better for Facebook not to have rebranded as Meta, because they've lost the credibility with a lot of people in how they have monetized their users. One of the concerns is when we are living in this augmented world, we're living in a real world and we are seeing, as you said, this is this kind of tree and this is the kind of information and that shop, I want to buy such and such and they have the information is accessible in front of you. This also allows for manipulation, not just at the level that has existed with social media, but to an extreme. So how can this augmented reality be developed in a way that leads to the betterment of humanity? So it's a really important point. It's an issue that I spend a lot of time speaking about and writing about and working with different organizations about. And really, I spend a lot of time trying to educate policymakers about the issue, because the solution, I think, ultimately is policy. The danger is that the metaverse, virtual reality, augmented reality, has the potential to give large corporations extreme control and influence over individuals. Now, I could say that about almost every major technology, but it is significantly worse than the problems that we've seen with social media which are significantly worse than the problems we saw with traditional mass media like radio and television. Like radio and television had its issues and policymakers felt like they understood how people advertise in radio and television. Policymakers felt like they understood how to deal with that. And so when social media came out and said, oh, we're just going to have an advertising business model, policymakers said, okay, we have that covered. We know advertising. And they didn't realize that social media was fundamentally different than radio and television and other forms of media. And the difference is that social media is a bi-directional medium. It's a bi-directional medium where it doesn't just give you advertising, but it also can profile your behaviors over time and target you in individual ways. And so what happened was this shift from traditional advertising to targeted advertising means that social media platforms, they basically became masters of tracking their user base, profiling their user base, and then using the profile to segment populations and target them in segmented ways. And so, again, you had this utopian technology that everyone expected would be amazing, and it became dystopian because this simple choice of business model meant that 
people were seeing different content. And so it was segmenting populations, driving different types of content to different groups, which drove polarization of communities. It drove distrust between different groups. It incentivized driving misinformation and disinformation. And it created all these problems that nobody expected. And so now policymakers are finally saying, oh, we have to try to fix social media. The metaverse makes it different than social media because the metaverse is also a bidirectional medium, but it's a real-time bidirectional medium, which means that in the metaverse, all of these things that maybe happen slowly over time in social media can happen instantly, meaning they can detect what you're doing and change the world around you in real time and actually influence you. And to give you an example of what would be possible in the metaverse, imagine I'm walking down the street in a virtual or augmented world. The first thing we have to understand is that the platforms can be able to track everything I'm doing. They can track where I am. They can track who I'm with. When I look in a store window, they know what store window I'm looking in. They know how long I look in a certain area. They know where I slow down and speed up. So they're collecting everything. These metaverse platforms are also tracking your facial expressions and your vocal inflections. They're potentially even tracking your blood pressure and pupil dilation. So they're doing that to infer your emotions. So now these platforms, as I'm walking down the street, platforms know everywhere I am, exactly what I'm doing, and exactly how I feel while I'm doing it. <laughs> that, that's a lot more extensive tracking than social media, which is tracking just where did I click and who are my friends? And so they can track a lot. And at the same time, they can then target you with content, right? Now, in social media, target you, targeting you with content means a pop-up ad or video or a piece of news. In the metaverse, which is an immersive world, targeting you with content means putting things into your world. I'm walking down the street in the metaverse, and they can put virtual product placements into my world that look like just as real as everything else. They can put virtual people into my world that look just as real. So what we're saying here is that a metaverse platform has the ability to track everything you do, exactly how you feel while doing it, profile you over time, and then change the world around you as a form of influence. That sounds dangerous, right? <laughs> that sounds dangerous. And that's why policymakers need to realize this is pretty different than what we've seen with social media. And so I could be, for example, let's say I'm walking down the street in the metaverse and they've tracked me, they profile me, they know everything about me, and they know that I'm on the market for a new car, for example. And while I'm walking down, I just happen to be walking behind another couple, a young couple in the metaverse, and it could be a real world, it could be augmented, but I'm walking behind a young couple and they're just having a conversation and talking to each other about how uh, they just bought this new Tesla and how much they love it and how great the gas mileage is. And I just hear this conversation as I'm walking behind them. And after 20 seconds, our paths diverge. And I walk on and I think, oh, like people must really like this new Tesla. And what I don't realize, no, that was a virtual product placement that was put into my world. It looks real. Maybe have no way to even know that it wasn't authentic people. And it was put there as a targeted product placement. Only I saw that couple. Somebody else might have seen something else. And the conversation that they were having was custom generated for me. So they profiled me. They know my interests. They know my personality. They know my values. And so they were talking about this car in a way that was specifically targeted so that it would be appealing to me. And as we've all seen with chat GPT and its ability, your large language models, like 
if I told you this a year ago, and I did tell people like this a year ago, they said, oh, that's far in the future before. No, you could do that today. <laughs> you could do that now. But it actually gets even scarier. Okay. And it gets scarier because the metaverse is real time. And so while I'm walking behind this couple, hearing this conversation that's generated by a large language model based on my interests, so it's very, it's going to be very persuasive, right? They're also monitoring my blood pressure, my pupil dilation. So if one of the people in this real-time virtual conversation, is, if they start talking about the horsepower of a Tesla and how fast it goes from zero to 60, and my pupils dilate for a second, they say, oh, like that had a real impact. And so they will now adjust their tactics in real time. Their conversation, this conversational AI, this conversational advertisement will adjust its tactics in real time based on my physiological reactions. <laughs> and so the idea that you could turn the metaverse into this ultimate tool of persuasion, unless there's regulation, unless there's policy, that will happen. Like that's exactly what's possible. The thing is, I don't believe that these metaverse companies, I don't believe that they want to make their business model to be how to create the ultimate tool of persuasion. But if there's no regulation, as soon as the first company starts saying, we can sell better advertisements by tracking your pupil dilation and adjusting conversations in real time, and we'll have better impact and better sell through, as soon as the first company starts doing it, then another company has to do it. And it will become this arms race. And we saw this arms race before in social media. All these companies started out with utopian visions. And instead, they became these ultimate machines of driving misinformation. The metaverse, without regulation, will become this ultimate machine of persuasion, of targeted persuasion. And it won't just be to sell Teslas. It will be to sell propaganda. It could be used by state actors to control populations. And all the reasons that make the metaverse this amazing tool for education and entertainment also make it really powerful as a tool of persuasion, unless there's policy and that says, you know what, you can't do that. You can't build this immersive advertisement that is adaptive based on the physiological reactions of a person who's just overhearing the conversation. You can't do that. And in fact, you shouldn't even be able allowed to put this virtual couple into this world in a way where I can't tell that it's an advertisement. In the metaverse, an advertisement, a product placement, a virtual person could look indistinguishable from everybody else. And so I could very easily not know what's promotional and what's authentic, unless there's regulation that says, no, if you put promotional content into somebody's world, a targeted product placement, it has to look different. If it has to look different, has to be visually distinct as promotional, at least I know that when I'm overhearing this conversation, that it's not authentic, it's targeted. And I can be skeptical. If they can't have it adapt itself to my physiological reactions, I'm less likely to be persuaded in these crazy ways. But the important thing is for people to realize that the metaverse isn't just social media in 3D. I talk to policymakers who say that to me, who say, yeah, we're still trying to figure out how to, to solve social media, and this is just social media in 3D. It's like, no, this, this is not just social media in 3D. This is a real-time immersive world where a platform can track everything you do and then change everything in here and feel. Like, that's a big deal. That is really important, Lewis. I have quite a few policymakers who also listen in the podcast and these conversations in that the potential for the metaverse is huge. 
However, we do need to put in those guardrails, which we didn't think through with social media, in that the potential positive is huge as long as we have the guardrails so it won't end up going off track. Now, I do want to also highlight you did a great TEDx talk, which I'm going to link to in the show notes, which also connects with the company you're running right now, Unanimous AI, and the Swarm technology. Because part of what you say in that TEDx talk that I want to underline before finding out more about Swarm is that you say that there is an alien coming toward Earth and this alien will be smarter than we are as humans. And Lewis, I have to tell you, you terrified me in that (laughs) talk. However, it's also talk with a lot of hope because you say and you show that with swarm intelligence, we can be smarter than that super intelligent AI. What is swarm and what are you doing at Unanimous AI with Swarm? At the highest level, when you think of AI technologies, especially AI technologies when it comes to issues like decision-making and forecasting, what most AI researchers are working on is looking at how can we replace people with AI technologies that can make really good decisions, replace people with AI technologies that can make really good forecasts. And those technologies have their place These pure AI models have their place, but they underestimate the power and potential of of humans. Because when you take humans out of the loop, you're taking away from this process, human values, human emotions, human intuition, human wisdom. And so at Unanimous AI, we founded the company eight years ago on this premise of, hey, we want to use AI not to replace people, but to make people smarter. And in particular, to allow groups of people to come together and make better decisions and better predictions and better forecasts. And we said, is there a way to use AI that actually keeps humans in the loop and allows these better decisions and forecasts without replacing us? And like a lot of technologies, we look to Mother Nature to say, you know, is there something we can learn from hundreds of millions of years of evolution? It turns out that there is, which is many different species have evolved methods where large groups can make decisions that are much smarter than any one of the individuals can make. You can think of a school of fish. School of fish can have thousands of individuals. Nobody's in charge. There's no leaders. There's no followers. And yet working together as a system, they can navigate the ocean and make decisions that keep their species alive for hundreds of millions of years. Same thing happens with swarms of bees, same things happens with flocks of birds. Biologists call this swarm intelligence. And again and again and again, it shows that large groups, when they work together in systems, can be smarter than individuals. And so we built a piece of software called Swarm and a technology called Swarm AI that allows groups of people anywhere in the world to connect together as a system and make decisions and forecasts and diagnoses and predictions and estimations. And they do it, and it looks graphically like they're a school of fish or a swarm, but there's AI algorithms that watch what everybody's doing, and it allows them to converge on decisions. And again, it was built on this premise of, hey, this works in nature. It makes birds and bees and fish smarter. I bet it'll make people smarter. And it turns out it does. And when a group of people come into swarm, it almost looks like a Ouija board. 
there's this glass puck and each person controls a little magnet and there's AI algorithms watching what everybody's doing with their mouse or their touch screen, but they can make significantly smarter decisions. For example, we did a study with MIT where we had groups of financial traders who would came into Swarm and they would predict the price of gold, the price of oil, and the S&P 500 every week for, I think it was 25 consecutive weeks. And they either did these forecasts alone, they did it by just taking a vote, which some people might call the wisdom of crowds, or they did it as a swarm intelligence using our software. And when they did it as a swarm, they were 26% more accurate than when they did it using traditional methods. They made more accurate predictions of if gold going to go up or down, oil, S&P. And those were groups of about 20 people. We then did a, a large study with Stanford Medical School with even smaller groups, with just groups of doctors who were just four or five doctors. And we had them diagnose chest x-rays. And they would either diagnose alone, diagnose by taking a vote, or diagnose as this real-time system using Swarm. And when they used Swarm, they reduced their diagnostic errors by over 30%. They had over 30% fewer errors uh, when they answered together as a Swarm. And these were already radiologists who were, <laughs> they were experts in themselves. But working together as a Swarm intelligence, they became a super expert. We've seen the same thing at predicting sports, beating the world's best sports handicappers, working together as swarms. And we work with Fortune 500 companies that use it for predicting if marketing messages will resonate with populations, predicting sales, predicting the sales of a new product. The thing that's interesting when you talk about, like, you know, why is this relevant to businesses? You know, sometimes co companies will come to us and they'll say, we tried to use AI to predict how our product was going to do in the upcoming holiday season. And we did it the traditional way. We had all this data about previous holiday seasons. We did machine learning on the data. And then we have this new product and we said, how is it going to sell? And we were completely wrong. And I say, you weren't completely wrong, but you did what everybody does, which was use the data you had, which was the data from last year and the year before. So what all you really did was you predicted exactly how your new product would have done last year. <laughs> you, were, you, you had a very good estimate. And that's the problem of most AI systems is that the data is not up to date. But the thing is, the human brain, like people, we're data collection machines. And so you have a team of sales representatives or a team of marketing folks who know what's trendy this season. You know what you're hearing from stores and from industry. What we want to do is tap the database that's in their heads, not the database from last year. And that's what Swarm does. We can connect a group of salespeople together or connect a group of marketing people together and have them work together as a Swarm, and they will accurately predict how the product will do this season. The biggest difference is the data. We're capturing the data that's in people's heads, which, again, we as humans, we don't value it. We think, oh, like, you want data? Go look in this database of all these statistics that we have. The human brain can store more data than, I think it can still exceed more than the entire library of Netflix. We don't appreciate like how much information is in our heads and how much intuition that we have about what, even with small amounts of data, we can make really good forecasts. An AI needs lots of data and it needs data that's up to date. And most businesses don't have that, not about what's going to happen this holiday season, but they have people. And so our philosophy is people are smart. We can use AI to make them smarter instead of trying to replace them with algorithms that are just looking at data that it doesn't really understand what it means. I absolutely love it, Lewis, and it marries the best of AI 
with human intelligence. Roger Martin, who is one of my favorite strategists, talks about the fact that most organizations make a mistake in thinking through their strategy. They try to come up with strategy for the future based on data from the past. And I totally agree because that's a lot of times the biggest mistake much of the strategic planning conversations I have been involved with make. What you're doing, in essence, is using the AI not to just build on the data of the past to forecast the future, but to build on the intelligence of the group. So we could talk for hours just on Swarm, and I'd encourage the audience to watch your TEDx talk. We'll link to it in the show notes, as well as look into Swarm. Typically, Lewis, I ask the guests for resources, but with you, you have a lot of your own resources. For people to understand whether it is augmented reality and the metaverse, or artificial intelligence and your swarm technology at Unanimous AI, where would you send them to? For Unanimous AI, our website is just unanimous.ai. And we have lots of information there about how we can enable groups of people, teams that really can think about it as if you have a team of people who have knowledge about something and you want to make them smarter, we show how that can be done. It can be small groups, it can be large groups, and they can be anywhere in the world. One of our customers is the United Nations, and they use Swarm to forecast famines around the world. And they'll bring together a group of 20 people, and those 20 people are probably all in different countries, different continents. And they'll come together and they will forecast the likelihood of famines in different places. And so resources on unanimous.ai for issues around the metaverse, augmented reality, virtual reality. I write about that a lot. I write about it for VentureBeat. I write about it for Big Think. You can follow me on LinkedIn because I usually post my articles there. And I'm always happy to answer questions about, especially about the dangers of the metaverse and how policymakers can help make a difference. Because my feeling about the metaverse is that the most important thing we learned about social media is that we waited 10 years too long to try to put regulation in place. And you can't put regulation in place after the fact because these large companies built their whole business models around tracking and profiling and targeting users. And you can't then come in and say, okay, you have to ad abandon your whole business model. But if you put regulation in place early, then the companies will adopt a business model that doesn't compete on who can create the most persuasive advertisement. They can compete on who creates the most amazing experience. And so it would guide the industry in a way that would be good for everyone. And I'm always interested in passing information along to people about why it's actually good for the industry to have guardrails in place so that we don't create this arms race to turn what could be a utopian technology into another dystopian technology. You've got a lot of great articles, including in Big Think. Metaverse could be far worse than social media in that there is tremendous potential. You have been a pioneer, have over 300 patents, which is incredible, Lewis. So you have been a pioneer in the space. And as a pioneer in the space, you're saying there is tremendous potential to humanity if we just make sure we put the right guardrails around it. So really appreciate you taking your time to share your insights with the Partnering Leadership community. Thank you so much, Louis Rosenberg. Thanks, it was fun. 
You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.